Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending February 17. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9 a.m. broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. It's plum picking time at Triple R. Digger talks pruning summer fruit trees and answers questions from listeners. Fee Wright reviews The Book of Goose by Yin Yun Lee, conspicuous in its absence of feathers but abundance of friendship. And Anne Jacobs tells us about the vital work of Support Act. Game reviewer Dan Morganti takes us through Your Only Movies Hustle and with Nosferatu at the Malthouse, we speak to playwright Kazia Warner. Nat starts an overdue brainstorm on whiteboards, but we kick off the week canvassing our varied passions on allocated seating. Triple R. Yesterday I went to the movies, which was lovely, real treat. Excellent. Um, I saw Triangle of Sadness. I know you're wanting to see it, aren't you, Daniel? Mm. Yeah, it's... And you've seen it, haven't you? Yes, I have seen it. Yes. What did you think? I'm not going to go in and no spoilers, no reviews, just a brief. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it left a big impression upon yep. me. Mm-hmm. Trying to keep it very general. I thought as a film in perhaps three acts. Yes. I feel like the first act I found most intriguing. Yes. And it did become quite grotesque, sort of literally and yeah. metaphorically as the film progressed. So certainly an admirable production perhaps my least favorite of their films okay i think force majeure still stays with me oh i haven't seen it yeah i loved it i absolutely loved it i thought it was so funny but i i i'm curious because going to the movies it's something that always strikes me and i kind of get mixed results from people i'm just intrigued about how you feel about reserved seating. So the cinema <laughs> was quite empty yesterday. Mm-hmm. It was like midday kind of screening and just people kind of shuffling and moving people on for reserved seats. It didn't happen to me, but I could just hear the whispers of, oh, they're actually our seats. It was quite a small cinema. There was no kind of spot, I would say, that would be a better view than others. Like we could all sit in the centre it was all relatively similar. Yes. How do you feel about reserve seating? I'm in favour of it. I, I understand the point. I like the idea of being able to enjoy the trailers or whatever and not thinking that mm. someone's going to come up. I, I like them. And then once, it's, once the film's underway, then shuffle around. You think shuffle when the film's happening? Well, if people have missed the boat for when you know, before the film has started, yes, once it started, if you want to change seats, like on a plane, do it after the, we've taken off. Oh, that is so interesting. I think you void your right to shuffle after the film started. Oh, I'm, I'm wondering, so just to, to make sure I have this straight, Daniel, you're thinking that potentially once you have a complete survey of the scene, yeah. the film is underway, no one is likely to be entering the cinema at this oh, point. That's right. Then you can identify which seats are available. Exactly. But I'm talking about moving other people because if you think they're in their seat okay yeah move them you know i'm sick of this i'm so sick of this i'll move it people cannot be trusted no i'm I'm sorry people are are probably moronic yeah they they can't even get on a tram no without moving to a vacant spot no so sit in your assigned seat okay and as simon says when we can survey the land later and and if 
You've run the gauntlet. And you know what? <laughs> you're, you're just banking on the person whose seat it is being too timid to say anything. Yeah. Well, you can go to hell. But no, wow. what if it's like a really... I mean, there was so much space in the cinema. I'd just like to go on the record and yeah. say that I sat in my allocated seat. Yes. Yes. But it has happened before that I kind of ducked into a movie yes. a bit... Um, it was kind of... Yeah, maybe close to the end of the preview. So to um, cause the least disturbance to other patrons, yeah. I just tucked in the aisle seat. I was on my own. Very yeah. thoughtful. And then at least 20 minutes into the film, a couple came in very late, iPhone torch in my face saying, wow. you're in my seat. Mm. And I just always operated off the idea or that rule of thumb of like, once you're that late to a film, like you've voided your yeah. right to your allocated seat. Can we agree on I that? I agree with that. Thank well, you. Well, I don't know. This is such a thorny ethical Isn't conundrum. It? I wonder if there are, yeah, there are, it's such a nuanced discussion that absolutism. That's right. Now, did they, did, did they, they didn't forfeit their right holes bolus because if there were heaps of seats available, then to it, cause the least friction, just sit in one of the other available But there seats. was. There was heaps of seats yeah. available. Mm. But if there weren't, then, yes, they're entitled mm. to get a- out the absolutely. torch. And it's distressing because certainly, yeah, the kind of courtesy one would extend to others, one hopes others would extend to you as well. Yeah, I was so annoyed by it. I was like, yeah. get heaps of other seats. And it ought to be such a pleasurable experience. Exactly. A, a merry excursion to the cinema, this tem- yeah. temple of... Artistic achievement. Yes. Yes. This is where the despair lies, though, for me, because once someone sits in a seat that they're not allocated, Mm. maybe they don't imagine the ripple effects and the dominoes Mm. that fall where someone moves into the next seat that they've been. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. And so it's better to just... Sit in your seat. Yeah. Okay. No. Absolutely. I'll take that on board. I and I'll. I know this came up last week with the review with Babylon, but Triangle of Sadness. Absolutely loved it, but it ran at two hours twenty minutes. Yes. I mean, what is going on? I'm sorry, but movies are blowing <laughs> out. Someone <laughs> needs to have a sit down with all of the directors. It's too much. I know you kind of, you pointed out, Daniel, you're like, Nat, where, where have you got to be? If you're just under... quality control. I just want a bit of editing. Fair enough. I think three hours, if you're over three hours, you have to justify every frame. I just went through, so I've gone through just really quickly, all of the films nominated for an Oscar, best films. Yeah. They're all sitting at like two and a half hours over, there's two that sit over three hours. And I've had it. Right. <laughs> and I don't like checking the duration time before I go into a no. film because then I'm mentally going, okay, now we're going to wrap that up, wrap that up. So I don't like checking. Loved the movie yesterday. I've loved several of the films I've seen of late, but they've been too yeah. long. Yeah, if it makes you feel better, you could knock off mentally 10 minutes for credits. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> it's been the plot. And I go out and I, whoever I've gone to the film with, I go, what would you do? What would you cut? It's my new favourite yeah, game. I'd go, right. you're in the edit suite, you're the producer. What scenes are we taking out? The 20-minute scene where they made a frittata? I'd start with that. Melbourne's own Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. 
Taking your horticulture queries on 0466981027. We're joined by the gardener with famously juicy plums. It's just Nicky Cowley. Morning, <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. How are you all? Well, yeah, well thank invigorated you. Invigorated. It is with yeah. your presence. And yeah, you've, brought you've... in some plums. Now, where are these plums from? So they're from uh, an orchard I just finished pruning up in South Morang. It's called Farm Vagano. It's a public orchard. If you want free fruit, go up and uh, you've got 600 trees to help yourself to. Yeah, thank you so much for the information. Definitely filing that. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Yeah, it's a lovely, you know, it's rare that you find a public orchard. And I mean, it's orchards are things that not that many people spend that much time in. Mm. Would that be fair enough to say? Yes. Like, I, I mean... I'm, I'm in an orchard every day. <laughs> <laughs> and they're lo- it's a lovely thing to walk through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees. So stunning. Especially at this time of year where, you know, some of them are finished, but a lot of the plums have still got plenty of fruit on them. Are some of these gigs that you do kind of like the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you know how you finish painting it, then you've got to start again? Yeah, So absolutely. if this is 16 acres or whatever, what effort do you have to put in? Yeah, well, it, you know, it takes me, uh, for the summer prune takes about 10 days and then I do it again, just go through in winter. So every winter, Every summer, just press repeat. Yeah. And it's really – like the first day is so fun. It's like, oh, God, look at them all. We're going to do this, do this. And then you get 300 trees in and you're kind of like, oh, shit, I'm only halfway. <laughs> and then you get to 500 and it's like, oh, make it stop. You know, I just want to burn this orchard down. <laughs> and what do, <laughs> what do they specialise in? Um, it's got a little bit of everything. So there is citrus, but in a deciduous orchard that I just finished, you know, there's pears, apricots, plums, apples, figs, quinces, medlars. All different sorts. And you of were stuff. saying that next week is when they'll reach full maturity. Yeah, so. the plums that are that this bag of plumlets, you know, they're just going to hit their peak. I think next week, once we get this hot weather over the weekend, that'll send them over the edge. So you better rush because there's a lot of people watching, mm. and there's a lot of kangaroos there too. So they're always pulling branches down. They're the bane of the orchard because they, nice. they can get up quite high and just rip. They just pull branches down and snap them. You know. So and when you say there are people watching. Um, like all the locals who know the orchard are waiting for peak day, uh, and they're coming with their day. garbage bins. And it's, <laughs> it's on. Them up. Yeah, it's on for young and old. And there's no cap like fishing. No, there's no restriction. Okay. Wow. So, Off you we know, go with our willy bins. It, yeah, I was going to say, you know, be a little bit more responsible. Don't, don't back the ute down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. It's enough for everyone. Yeah. Um, there are so many questions flying through thick and fast already, 0466981027. Can we throw one or two at you? Go for it. Uh, there's a listener who wants, what do I do about the lemon tree with the white scaly pattern? Uh, and there's pictorial evidence here, if you can catch that. Okay. What's okay, going on yeah, there? that's a, a citrus leaf miner. It's a little grub in the middle of the leaf, mining, chewing its way through, getting those squiggly patterns. So citrus leaf miner, you just have to pick those leaves off and put them in a bucket of water. Simple. And make sure that your citrus is then hydrated and it will produce new leaves. It's easiest fix of all the lemons. Wow. Okay. That is easy. Easy peasy. Well done. Take out some frustration just picking leaves. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I have a six-metre fence line with Rio mesh. How many passion fruit vine plants I need to have fruit? Okay, six metres, put one every three metres. Um, so, yeah, I would put one at, two end, one at each end and one in the middle. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much it. The thing with them is because you've got then these two gaps in the middle, in about four years' time, put another two in in those gaps because they only last about seven years or so, so you've got to have a succession planting program. Mm. 
So does that make, you know, you've got one, two, three with two gaps and then in four years planting the two gaps and then seven, four years after that plant back in the number one, two and three. Yeah. So that was just a 10-year plan you rolled out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also just want to ask, thinking about everyone, do you ever get stage, as a professional pruner, do you get stage fright with people watching you? Nah. Right. Mm. Nah, I love it. I usually have two. You know, I have both hands going. <laughs> you kind of get into a mix. You really? kind of get into a rhythm. Yeah, there's a... Are you almost ambidextrous or actually I'm are? naturally ambidextrous anyway, so it kind of worked for me to go into pruning. So. Just as you were describing that process, you brought out a, a pair of sets. Do you have one in both pockets? Yeah. Yeah, yeah wow. two sets, one on each hip and just literally... Okay. And, and it falls to the ground and you don't have to catch anything? No. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. We've... And then if we're on, you know, long, if I'm using long loppers up on trees, because up on here, you know, it's summer pruning, so you bring the tops of the trees down. Mm. I'm up on a five metre ladder with extension loppers, so I'm like seven metres in the air. And you kind of just, as you cut, you flick it and throw it out so it doesn't all fall into the centre of the tree, because then you've got to climb the tree to get it out. So you cut and flick, cut and flick, and you're throwing it as you're going. Oh. That's a good little dance move. Yeah, you, you should that. have your own like ad, like TikTok. Yeah, the Cotty's commercial. <laughs> We've got a couple more questions coming through. Uh, one listener was saying half of my orange tree has lost its leaves. They went brown during a hot day this summer. Will they grow back, or do I need to prune half the tree back? You need to prune half the tree back. Yeah, once those leaves are gone completely brown, it's carked it. It's sunburned more than likely. So that's a reminder to hydrate. Even though we're not getting these forty degree days. There's still it's still quite dry, yes. so there's, and a lot of trees are dry. So hydrate, that's your lesson, and you've definitely got to hydrate because it's going to want to put on the new growth and that's going to need water. Absolutely. All right, what's happening with my native hibiscus? Half the tree is dead. Mm. It has pink flowers. Uh, okay, yeah, so it's been looks like it's been ring-barked there. So something's had a big chew, and right down the bottom, that's called the collar of the tree, and that's where the cambium layer is, where the xylem and phloem, the main arteries of plants. So essentially it's cut off all feeding the rest of the tree um, by taking all that bark off the lower section. Uh, you're in strife. Oh, dear. Yeah, I'd ask someone for a, a new present. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, we've got a, another question um, coming through. Uh, morning from West Heidelberg, Jimmy... Uh, says he took your advice a few years back on going hard pruning the fig, only they lost the first year of uh, bounty to the bats. Mm-hmm. They are a couple of weeks away from being ready and wondering if netting is the best solution. Um, yeah, you can try netting, but, gee, you've got to be really good at it. Um, I'm not a massive fan. Over the years, because I've pruned orchards and nets and those kind of things, inevitably you're going to get a bat or a bird stuck in it at some point. And this might sound a bit, you see, I am kind of a cranky old bastard, but... My thing with nets is if you're prepared to have to dispose of a bird or a bat because of its damage and how injured it is, go for it. But if you don't think you could do that, maybe steer away from it. I, th- I prefer to teach people to prune so that your fruit is really, really low to the ground, mm-hmm. not high off the ground, because less likely they're going to come down low. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, other strategies, find someone who's got a dog, put dog hair in the tree, put tinsel oh. in the tree, all these other strategies just to minimise the loss to ba- to birds and bats um, because, yeah, it's just terrible if they get caught in it. Excellent advice. I have a fig tree, so how would you prune to make the fruit lower to the ground? So all different fruit, fruit on different age wood. Now, figs fruit on wood that's one year of age, they form an embryo on a one-year-old tip mm-hmm. and then it will f- fruit on that tip. So your wood is about 18 months old by the time you harvest. You just have to prune to stimulate growth in areas 
of that age. So okay. essentially, prune lower down, stimulate a lot of growth low down, and thin some of that out and just leave some of that to fruit. And each year, if you prune 50% of that new growth off, you're going to have 50% of new growth next year. Mm. And so you're just staggering your fruiting wood. Okay. But ideally, with fruit trees, you've got to start when they're really young. Okay. And that's part of the, the summer pruning thing is winter pruning is to stimulate growth, which is awesome. But summer pruning is to slow it down because if you don't slow it down, it's going to want to race and get high because it's a tree. That's yeah. what it wants to do. So summer pruning is just knocking all the tops off it so that it stays nice and full down below. All right. What to do with the standard grevillea that is completely died at the top but is spreading green shoots along its trunk? Uh, along the trunk is that's where the it's a grafted one. So it's, it would be the perinda. Uh, the grafted grevilleas. So, yeah, that's all coming from the rootstock. So you're not going to get the same flowers from all that new growth. Okay. Uh, what about these tomatoes? There's always tomatoes. They're going okay. They're fruiting, but not prolifically, and they're taking more time than usual to ripen. Any thoughts or advice? Yeah, that's our summer. It's just not bloody hot enough for okay. tomatoes. Yeah. Everything's slowed. So we had a burst uh, when the warm weather around New Year's, and then everything slowed down again, And then because they fruited then, and now everything's just sitting I've had tomatoes sitting in the same stage for about three weeks and just aren't ripening. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, yeah, this weekend we get some hot weather. That might get another batch. But if it cools right down now, we're just going to have a lot of green tomatoes. Okay. Excellent. Time for one more quick question. Um, a listener was asking, when do I prune my rose trees? So you, uh, you can dig a deadhead all the way through summer. As the flowers die off, just chop each flower off. But the big... Big prune will come in winter. Amazing. And the name of this joint in South Morang? Farm Vagano. Beautiful. Digger, thanks very much. Pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Reviewer Fee Wright's here to convey but a sliver of her ever-expanding wisdom. Morning, Fee. <laughs> every, every week. I just never know where you're going and I love it. I love it. Good morning, breakfasters. Good morning, good morning. Um, I am here to um, discuss the myth of not judging a book by its cover because I judged a book by its cover. Um, so, yeah, I, I picked the book that I'm here to – I picked it up purely because I thought the cover was interesting. Um, and the book is called The Book of Goose by um, Yi Young Lee. Um, and it's out by Fourth Estate. Um, and the cover that drew my eye is – it's a um, – I guess it kind of looks like a still life. Um, it's of a goose that's potentially dying or dead um, on an interesting, funny angle – um, and it looks kind of like a still life, like a bowl of fruit and has really sharp light. And I just maybe go, hmm, and uh, needed to know more. And that is, that's it. I'm done. That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, no, no, sorry. Um, when I first started reading it, because I was very confused because there was very little to do with geese initially. Um, heads up fewer geese than than you expect. Um, we meet Agnes. She's a French move, woman who has uh, moved to America. She's received a letter from her mother about a childhood friend passing away. And so this causes Agnes to reminisce over their friendship um, because they were very close around like 12, 13 and reflect on their relationship. Um, I really enjoyed I really enjoy the discussion of tween and early teen friendships because so often that age of girlhood 
is depicted as sugar and spice and everything nice. But, and that, I mean, I'm going to put you on the spot here a bit. Every woman I know has at least the story of at least one seance from a sleepover yeah. <laughs> at that age. Yep, yep, there it is. 100%. 100%. Yeah, and it's, you know, there's some sort of witchcraft, dark arts obsession that all young women, I feel like, go through at some point. Um, and it doesn't depict a sunshiny kind of friendship, but this really intense one. The female friendships around 12, 13 are so intense, and my memory of them is that they were super intense and it's really interesting that it's um lee has said uh because she's she grew up in in china and lived there until she was about 23 she said that it doesn't matter where a book is depicted young women all have this sort of connection and relationship um and I just am fascinated by every depiction of that and I will read every single book and it was very convenient that this uh cover just sucked me in purely mm. on so that are basis. So are they sacrificing in goose and they Well look, it's Ooh. more of a metaphor. Oh okay. <laughs> look, I don't want to I don't want to get like um you know the bird the the twitches too hyped. <laughs> it is more of a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um and in fact yeah, there's very little very little geese in this book at all um it's more about like a the concept of girlhood but then also motherhood so um at at the very beginning of the book agnes who's our narrator um she's found out that fabian has died in childbirth and this is not a spoiler and fabian is her friend and um agnes is also not a mother and when we go back in time Agnes's mother is not very present because her brother is at home dying of tuberculosis because it's just after World War II. And Fabian's mother has already passed away. So mothers aren't really present in the story at all. Um, and in fact, motherhood is something that is depicted as something that can kill. So it's it's quite dark at points because of there's a lot of death hanging around, particularly because this is, um, to give more context, it's directly after World War Two, um, France. You know, we're talking villages. There's a lot of death and suffering that has occurred in this time. There were about seven, I think, when the war ends, and Agnes is still at school, but Fabian has to leave. Um, she's left school because her mother passed away, so she needs to care for their family, and also she gets a job um, herding animals. So, and it really just it's kind of told in this flashback way of reflection of Agnes considering their friendship and how Fabian Fabian was very very smart um but not at all pretty um and an excellent liar and also known to be very very cruel and she dictates these stories to Agnes and Agnes is still at school and has good handwriting it is decided that if anyone asks she will say that she wrote the stories they then enlist the help of a local adult's Um, And they get the stories published. And so it becomes this kind of uh, firstly French focus of this um, child author, peasant, becoming becoming an incredible author, Um, but then also an international um, event. And uh, so it's kind of like these young women dealing with the fallout of this lie that gets bigger and bigger and how do we control this uh, narrative and the stories themselves are also incredibly disgusting <laughs> uh, they're very crude and disturbed um, 
you don't actually get to read any of them, but they discuss them a lot. And so dead children feature really heavily, including one who has died and is fed to farm animals. People have sex with farm animals. Not things you expect to read from 12-year-old girls in the 1950s. And uh, so just that depiction alone is already not... It's breaking all of these things that you expect in stereotype about young women. Mm. And, yeah, it was fascinating. So do you feel like reading this, like even though it's kind of so far removed from what you um, kind of describe of like how you would have experienced your teenage friendships and seances, Mm. you find it really relatable? Yeah, I mean, I never wrote about um, (laughs) killing children and feeding them to farm animals, but that kind of some sort of... um, you know, well, you, you know when you like. I, I mean, in the age of COVID, kids probably don't do this anymore. When you would like spit in your hand and then shake, and it would be, you know, you would have that kind of connection. I think of it a lot in the f- terms of the film Now and Then, yeah. Uh, which every woman I know has incredibly watched that film over and over again, and very few men I feel know of it. Um, but it's again this. It's not so much the 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 disturbed elements, but more the fact that. I feel like, yeah, I felt – it made me think of um, Marina's sleepover parties yeah. when, I was, uh, when I was a girl and the seances that we uh, we did. It also really reminded me a lot of um, Margaret Atwood's Cat's Eye, mm. um, you know, this sort of interwoven friendship, still thinking about a lot, and these young women, these young girls could be from anywhere, anytime. Um, it's just a specific type of intensity that you may never experience with any kind of relationship. Sorry to kind of create a real othering experience for Daniel and, and Winkles here, but, yeah, that's... Well, no, I mean, I'm fascinated to hear you describe it and certainly interested to hear some of the surprising elements that you were describing. One question I did have mm. that I've sort of got the impression of from interviews um, with the author is the playful use of language. And apparently the the author made a very specific choice not to write in her mother tongue, which is Mandarin Chinese, because um, she said that I enjoy the tension between myself and language when I, uh, when I write in English? I um, was really shocked at first because when I um, – thanks for bringing that up because I was so shocked because I actually originally thought the book was written by a French author and translated because I just felt um, – it really reminded me of um, Annie Erno's um, The Years as well from how that book de- – depicts like the um that book I read it last year after she won the Nobel Prize and it really depicts this this changing times in France particularly post-war years and so because of that I just felt like it automatically was a book that um had come from a French author and so I was really surprised that it wasn't and then also it made me even more impressed with it because it just felt so it, it just felt at home in the language. Um, there are a few points in the book where I found the plot um, occasionally disjointed, but on a sentence-by-sentence sentence level, I couldn't put the book down because of how beautifully it was written um, and the incredible skill that Lee has with building tension, which then when you think that her first language, until she was like 23, I think, um, she lived in China, spoke Chinese, then a Mandarin um, Chinese, and then moved to America. And, you know, so to, to write with this level of skill and control, 
in your second language about living in a different place and time, I found incredible. Like it's, uh, it was so moving, but also this incredible ability to, um, builds tension and this sense of foreboding you don't actually know if anything's going to happen but um agnes you know because obviously she's the face of this lie um as time goes on she gets more and more kind of a bit stressed panicked how is she going to hold up to the the expectations of the public things like that um the way that lee has constructed that and the fact that it's you know, not in her native language is is incredible. Mm-hmm. I've so, said incredible too many times. <laughs> seduced by the intriguing cover, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about The Book of Goose by Yi Young Lee, out by Fourth Estate. Um, to, not enough geese. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Vic. Triple R. Established 25 years ago, Support Act is the music industry's charity delivering crisis relief services to musicians, managers, crew and music workers across all genres. Described as the heart and hand of Australian music, Support Act is in the midst of a new and essential campaign called Support Act Supports Us All. And to tell us about the services on offer and the state of well-being in the industry, we're joined by National Programs Manager at Support Act, Anne Jacobs. And welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, it's implausible when you started this gig. It's hard to fathom. Uh, September 2019, you were saying? Yeah. So I started uh, as a social worker with the um, Support Act team in September 2019, working, you know, a few hours a week and and supporting people who were applying for our crisis relief program. And we'd maybe get a, you know, handful of applications a week. Um, And I I was working with Lindy Morrison, who was our national welfare coordinator at the time. And we'd sort of stress out if there was more than two applications coming through, because one each, and who's going to deal with a third? And and then uh, obviously March 2020, that drastically changed and we received some funding from the federal government and started dealing with thousands of applications a week. So we obviously had to expand our team and uh, weathered the wild ride that we all went on together and, um, you know, it's really, really changed Support Act for the better, I think. Um, You know, we're one of the lucky people that sort of came out of it uh, on top, but, you know, we're still working with a lot of people who are struggling through, I think. Yeah. What are you observing presently? Well... A lot of people still sort of, I think people are just really struggling to get back in the swing of things, you know, um, still working out, rebooking gigs that they, they might have cancelled some time ago. Um, on the flip side, we're seeing that crew are working really hard. A lot of people left the industry, especially um, people who had been in the industry for a really long time. Those skilled workers have, have left and moved on and changed changed jobs. So um, crewing, people are finding it really hard at the moment to to. Um, probably like a lot of industries to, to staff um, big events. So it's sort of this this sort of I'd be really interested to see some data in the future about how people's mental health as well as um, is going coming out of this. I think we're really just experiencing. I, I know I am just a sort of general malaise about things. You know, yeah. just sort of still feeling a little bit unsure about whether to book things or whether to go to gigs because you're not sure whether things are going to be cancelled. We're also seeing across the board, like, a lot of festivals still being cancelled, you know, during their last last yeah, events. Yeah, we were speaking about this just a little bit earlier, and it's devastating to see. We were very excited to see that, obviously, Support Act supports us all is a bit of a, a campaign that's running at the moment to sort of raise awareness, to let people know that there is help and support available. And just following from, Daniel, your, your question, we'd be interested in maybe what you're seeing across genres as well, how it might differ for different types of music. Um, it's all pretty anecdotal, um, yeah. uh, but I think 
you know, people who already had a bit of a, a bit of a flow on are probably still going okay, mm. or they've they've been able to pick up again. But I think probably some of the more, uh, you know, the less mainstream. Um, uh, genres are probably struggling a little bit more um, to get things up and running. I think, um, you know, probably people buying tickets are sort of going with what they're used to, you know, on the bigger shows that are uh, probably definitely going to go ahead. So probably maybe some of the smaller shows um, that, you know, the last minute, oh, we'll just go down to the tote and see this band, um, maybe not happening as much. Um, but, yeah, I think it's still still going to be a bit of a struggle for some of those bands that were, were getting a bit of a flow on and then, yeah, yeah haven't, haven't been able to as much. And I guess you're offering some crisis relief grants. So yeah. we'd be really interested to hear sort of who's eligible and how you can go about applying yeah. for those. So that's, um, that, that's a program that's eligible for you know, people across the board, so all genres. And I think, you know, just getting back to that point, you know, whether you work in mainstream or sort of more, more um, popular music like rock and pop, but, you know, if you're a screen composer, if you work in art music, if you work in minimalist techno if you work in jazz or blues you're you're eligible for our support um the crisis relief program is for people who have been working professionally for five or more years and have a crisis that's impacting their ability to work in music unfortunately we've had to move a little bit away from covid being the crisis because we just don't have the funding for that at at present but um if you've had an accident um you've got an injury or some other crisis that's impacting your ability to work um you can um, please get in touch and we'll we'll try and support you through that uh you've mentioned uh support actors stated that one in five Australians will experience a mental health problem in any given year and these statistics are disproportionately higher for those who work in music. Can you put some flesh on that? Why is that so and how do you approach it? Yeah, so we did some research last year with uh, Swinburne University. Um, So probably, you know, some of the COVID impacts relate, uh, you know, came through in that in that data um, but we know that people who work in music have a lot more instability in their lives um, people you know might have to do second jobs to keep keep the flow on um, people tour a lot so they're disconnected from family and friends um, you know people don't have a lot of financial security so that you know all of those things really impact people's mental well-being mm. And is there something that Support Act offers that has really you've has been had a marked engagement lately or over the last few years? Yeah, so I think probably obviously our crisis relief program, you know, was really really um, well utilised throughout COVID. Um, our wellbeing helpline, um, we saw a, a spike in in calls to our wellbeing helpline throughout the COVID period, um, and that's a twenty four seven counselling service available to people who work in music, and it's free. Um, a lot of people are struggling to get in to see counsellors at the moment. Their waiting lists are really long, so I'd really encourage people to make contact. Um, it's a pretty easy process. Um, we also were able to develop a lot of really well researched. Um, uh, mental health programs and training programs, for instance, mental health first aid, suicide prevention programs, um, access all areas, which is ethical bystander training to sort of really look at um, the ins- uh, instances of sexual assault, discrimination, bullying within the music industry. Um, and also our First Nations team have really found um, they're supporting a lot of First Nations music workers and that's really increased with um, the great work that team are doing to, to increase our profile across mm. across the industry. Do you find Support Act has broad support or do you have to fight to be heard or what are some of the obstacles to getting the traction that you would ideally like to get? Yeah, I think we have really good support and the past couple of years have have really increased our profile and really um, made sure that people are um, 
aware of what we're doing. I think there's still a little bit of a way to go and I think that's what this campaign's really about, making sure that people who work in all, all areas of music understand that they're eligible, um, you know, that, that people who have been working in music for a short time or a long time are all eligible for our supports. Yeah, well, the wellbeing helpline is one eight hundred nine five nine five hundred. And what else can we do to get involved or lend our support? Uh, you can always jump online, have a little bit of a look at all the amazing resources that are on there, um, developed by our uh, in-house psychologist Ash King. Um, come on down to any events that you see happening. Um, I think they're updating you know, quite regularly our events page. There's some really good programs. I'd really encourage people to come to Sound Minds, which is a national program, but in major cities where people can come and just catch up and just meet up with people, less of a, you know, that icky networking situation, but more of a just meet up and hang out with people, like-minded people. Um, But there's lots going on in the organisation, so jump online, um, like and subscribe, as they say, and get amongst it. And broadly speaking, going to gigs, I suppose, and supporting the musicians in your life. And, And also one of those things, is just buy tickets early. You know, yeah. people are really struggling. You know, to know how to how to cater for. You know, when you when you don't have a sold out session. So yeah, buy tickets early. Get amongst them. Beautiful. Uh, Anne Jacobs, National Programs Manager at Support Act. Head to supportact.org.au for more information. Thanks very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Triple R. From Bite Into It Wednesdays on Triple R, we're joined by video gamer Dan Morganti. Morning, Dan. Morning, morning. <laughs> uh, now, what are you bringing to all of our attention? Um, so I'm bringing this game, uh, Your Only Move is Hustle. It's a two-player, turn-based fighting strategy game. Does that make a lot of sense to anyone? Turn-based? Can yes. you clarify that? Um, <laughs> so you've got uh, 30 seconds to pick your move. You've got a list of moves that you can pick from, uh, four categories, defence, movement, attack and specials. Um, and then fighting uh, like Street Fighter or uh, Tekken or many of the other fighting games. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen like professionals play Street Fighter. They're very good. They're, they can make characters do things that um, uh, regular people can only button mash to get the same result mm. um, and this game somewhat makes you feel like a professional but only very much at the end once they <laughs> go through the replay um, I'm not big into fighting games myself mainly because uh, I'm, I'm already behind there's a different language to fighting games like there's uh, uh, frame advantages and DI and wave dashing and lunch packing that, that last one's made up, but that's like, <laughs> it sounds legit because that's how, like, how much outsider knowledge it takes to get into video games, <laughs> uh, into fighting games, sorry. I love Avo smashing. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the best move to, yeah. that'll uh, win the game flat out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, right up the, um, it's difficult to get into fighting games just from the start because there's already so much assumed knowledge. And that's like coming from someone who plays a lot of video games as well. And like, I'm trying to get into fighting games the same way that I'm like trying to get into Wasabi. Like I just, I try it every now and then and like, Oh, do I, do I still not like this? Yeah. Not really. Good on you if you keep trying. I'm persistent. Um, so, um, I'm not really sure what DI is, but they're in the, on the HUD, which is the heads up display, which is, um, anything that's not actually in, um, in the diegetic world of the game. Um, there's a DI menu there. I still don't know what it does. So, um, I'm still a little bit confused as to what's going on. Um, and especially cause this game doesn't really have a tutorial. You just start the game, you join a game and, uh, 
it's just there. All the menu options are there, all the um, movement options, all the fighting options. Does, is this characteristic of games that are especially intuitive or creative, that they try to allow you the space to make your own fun? Um, I think this is just because it's a, made by a single person, um, Sly, Ivy Sly, um, they, and they predominantly make music. So the soundtrack to this is pretty good. It's uh, <laughs> upbeat, jazzy. It's, it's really nice. Um, but they've recently started getting into games. It's a, kind of a cheat game. Um, it was only like seven fifty on Steam, so if you do want to give it a go, that's where you'd get it. Um, but the reason I also wanted a cheap game is because I just had a wine weekend in Rutherglen, so I was um, my pockets are a little bit empty. So I'm like, I'll get something cheap. Um, I like to try games that are um, made by single people and like up and coming people because I can see all the rough edges of the game as well. So it's not like. Uh, your polished $60 title like a Final Fantasy or a Call of Duty or something like that. It's just something that someone's made. You can see their intention. The idea behind it is rock solid. You get that um, with a lot of independent-made games where they've got one uh, encompassing idea that they really focus on, and it's not just like... uh, bunch of other ideas stitched together so it's um this like turn-based fighting game which is um they generally don't go hand in hand so that that's um like kind of what this game is all around um yeah so it's like all these different moves attacks defenses Uh, you can start throwing combos together so i reckon the only way to get into this game is just to go in and start pushing buttons until something happens um you can like do a jump and then get to choose the angle of the jump so a menu will come up and show how hard you want to jump and how what angle you want to jump on so So you're choreographing the perfect yeah and it it feels like regular playing a fighting game when you're doing all this where you don't really know what you're doing you feel like you're mashing buttons and then right at the end when one of the either player wins and the health bar drops down it does a full replay of the game and it makes you look like you knew what you were doing all along which is like the most satisfying part of this entire game is right at the end when it does the replay and shows you um, kicking ass better than you could if uh, it was in real time. Having only seen just a brief uh, video of it it looks uh, frenetic and busy and also uh, disarmingly basic. Yeah, I think that's another thing. The fact that it's made by a single person, um, it's it's ugly. it's an ugly game. It looks ugly. It's like Stick Fighter. You remember when the internet first came out and there was only like Yahoo.com and StickDeath.com? Like, <laughs> um, it's it looks like that. It's two. It, you can choose from four different characters: a ninja, a pirate, a fighter, and something else. But they're they're all look they're all just different variations of stick characters. I'm just looking at it briefly, a picture yeah. of it, but it's kind of nostalgic, though. Yeah, isn't it? it reminds me of like playing the Atari when I was like yeah. in primary school. And it's got the graphic the graphical interface at the bottom is very basic and like looks like ASCII graphics, like um, really computer generated, like eight nineteen eighties computer. Um, graphics um, yeah it's uh, it's not a very nice looking game um, but it doesn't have to be uh, for what it's trying to do and how it pulls it off mm. yeah are you addicted uh, yeah I am actually like uh, I didn't think I would be but once like you get into it and you start throwing your character around and start beating other people as well um, yeah it's it's quite addicting it, despite the fact that it looks the way it looks and um, but the and the way that you start playing the game is very unnerving at the start. It's like there's something about it that's uh, made me come back yeah. again. Yeah. 
and it sounds quite contemplative in its pace, in the sense that it is turn-based, so you can really design the move. But is the soundtrack sort of upbeat, or is it also a little bit more contemplative? Um, I think it's a little bit more upbeat, yeah. yeah. It uh, definitely puts a little pace on it, and there's a timer in between each move, so you have 30 seconds to select your move. So there's still, like, a little bit of pressure on you to make a move. It just... Um, gives you a little bit more time to think about it and then there's options and before you even select your move it shows what you what it will look like if you choose that move and so there's like this kind of back and forth between like you're going into the future of what this move could look like but then you reset it and you do it choose another move and then it's got this 30 second time pressure so you can't do that with every single move you have so you have to um choose so there's still like a little bit of pressure and the music i think um yeah really suits that and goes along with it so and what happens with a game like this does it have a life so it launches and does it live beyond the launch you know it's like how some films it's all about the opening weekend or whatever yeah but can this game that we're talking about, your only move is Hustle, it's, it looks simple, but can it can it grow? I think so. I think the something like this is more about the complexity of the elements, the, the gameplay elements. So the depth of the fighting game mechanics, like um, that's all fighting games live and die on, is the the mechanics and the the specific minutiae in the like really fine detail like i said before all that di and wave dashing stuff that's how video game communities uh, sorry fighting game communities really rallied around a game um and i think this game has a chance to do this more of like a um a training tool for other games where it's like you can use it as a you get to consider your moves and see what happens next and Mm. um all that kind of stuff and i guess for independent games in general as well where it's like a passion project from someone and then it comes out and it something just clicks with it this person who wasn't real deep into the video game industry um in a large studio or something like that makes something that just seems to click with people and um people pick it up because of that and there's just something about an outsider independent game developer that um has a chance of like really popping off yeah and then of course they reap the benefits of that and not so much just a faceless publishing studio that's right yeah. and how are your hands after this it looks like <laughs> <laughs> um, they're they're sore my fingertips are, <laughs> my fingertips are I, I never really focus too much on pushing buttons until yeah. like you realize after you're done you, yeah fingertips are sore from pushing down so hard all right tell yeah. us what we've been speaking of uh this is your only move is hustle a turn-based 2d fighting game with Ugly graphics, but um, a little bit of uh, heart and a lot of complex uh, depth. Cool. Catch Dan Morganti tomorrow night. I'm biting to it. Uh, Dan, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Kezia Warner is a playwright, dramaturg and winner of Sydney Theatre Company's Patrick White Playwrights Award, whose credits include Puna at Next Wave, Control at Red Stitch and Luna at VCA, to name a few. Her latest work at Malthouse is an adaptation of F.W. Mornau's 1922 classic silent horror, Nosferatu, a symphony of horror, to tell us about this contemporary gothic reimagining. The playwright joins us now. Kezia, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. You're probably sick of explaining. (laughs) Uh, But nonetheless, we're going to have to make you set the scene for what we're stepping into. Absolutely. So um, 
Nosferatu is set in a fictional town in Tasmania called Blue Water. It's a small sort of former mining town, and the mine has closed, and the, the people of, we meet the people of the town when they're just absolutely on their knees, desperate for any new investment or um, industry to come through the town, and they get um, a letter from kind of a mysterious uh, count in Sydney, and they think, well, you know, What's the worst that can happen? And uh, everything really goes downhill for them from that. <laughs> what surprised you about the fact that this idea hadn't been done before? Was it just so obvious to you and it's sitting on the table waiting for someone to pick it up? So, yeah, a little bit. I think particularly coming last year is the 100-year anniversary of a film, so that always feels like, you know, that people will have been kind of thinking about it or it's going to be in the ether. But I think because, you know, the idea of um, a, a rich person coming to a small town and literally sucking the life out of it just feels like <laughs> such a perfect metaphor. I, I felt like someone must have thought of it before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why Tasmania? Um, a few reasons, but, um, I mean, obviously when we're talking about it, originally gothic novel and a gothic film um you know we're going to be looking at australian gothic and i started looking into tasmanian gothic particularly and what kind of sets that apart is um the focus on the environment and environmental degradation you know there's such iconic examples in tasmania obviously the deforestation but the the tiger and the devil and you know even salmon farming now you know is poisoning hobart's drinking water and um in the film itself nosferatu there's a connection made between the vampire orlock and how he draws his strength from this kind of cast earth. And so I liked that idea of cast earth and the environment. Mm. And, yeah, it just felt like the perfect setting. <laughs> I was lucky enough to watch the preview last Friday. So congratulations. I absolutely loved it. But, yeah, like I was so curious to see how you would, you know, stage this gothic thriller, um, almost horror on stage. But I was quite surprised there was some kind of real lighter moments in it and w- wondering what, like, the um, relationship to humour there was in the text when you were writing it. Yeah, there's lots of humour in it. Humour is very important to my writing always. I love making people laugh, but I think it's so perfect for vampires as well. You know, they're always these kind of very um, erudite, dry sort of figures, and um, so humour feels so important to that, and it's such for an audience you know, you can really open people up with a few jokes and then, yeah. you know, then get to kind of punch them in the guts later. Mm. Yeah. How scary does it get? Oh, well, Nat has to tell you, I guess. I think it gets a little bit, it gets tense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's he's a scary guy, the the, the main vampire. Is yeah. Pretty, yeah. And what about the, uh, the staging of any, I don't know, how to, I'm just going to say gore. There's blood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, pl- there's plenty of blood. There's been, where, you know, in during a production process, the team have a lot of production meetings. There's been specific blood meetings for this show because mm. the different um, recipes and the different sort of delivery methods, it's been, a, it's been a whole thing. The staging or the stagecraft production value of the show really struck me. It was really, it was really cool to kind of witness. It felt like, yeah, kind of a big grand... Um, display I guess and there was a lot of technical elements and wondering like how much do you consider that the logistics and the staging when you are kind of working with the 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 script yeah um a little bit I I worry about how they're going to do it yeah other times I'm just like not my problem (laughs) (laughs) that is someone else's problem but it's also it's kind of a fun exchange in that you can put a bunch of sort of outrageous things in the script but then obviously you're going to be there in the room and talking to the director and the team and um you know there's a bit of give and take on that but yeah there's definitely a few challenges in the script that but as you say they've really met them it's really wonderful and when do you 
just leave it alone and say, okay, the baby's out in the world? A few weeks ago, I left yeah. it alone. Yeah, I've been so I was there kind of for the first uh, week and a bit of rehearsals, just while they got through the script and and made sure all the all the lines were right. And then I've been back for for runs and for previews. But yeah, you have to leave them to it. Yeah, <laughs> is there anything in writing gothic material where it you have to have faith on the page that it's going to translate the, this world that you create? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but I think that's the case with all theatre. You know, you're kind of taking a bit of a, a bit of a leap of faith. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but it's also, um, you know, then so much up to the actors and the and the performance and the director as well. Mm. I was going to ask. I mean, congratulations on the adaptation, and always so fascinated to hear how those classic texts are kind of brought into new contexts yeah. as well. I was kind of interested. Maybe if there were some elements of the original that particularly resonated that you think are underappreciated aspects of the text that you were keen to emphasise? Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, this this idea of the earth, I, I just thought was so fascinating that it, it's a cover of... I mean, it's a silent film, so there's only very few lines in it, um, but they do talk about... Um, yeah, a couple of times this connection to the dirt and vampires gaining their strength from the dirt that they were buried in, and I thought that was really fascinating. Um, but humour is part of it as well, to speak to your earlier question. Um, it's There's some dryness in the script, but then also because the filmmaking, you know, the special effects where they just, like, go into negative and things <laughs> like that, which are kind of funny to a contemporary audience. And I felt that that was having that... Um, keeping that humour and the tension at the same time is really remarkable. As far as the actual production go, what role does makeup play? <laughs> um, for the vampire, uh, makeup plays quite a large role, certainly at the start. He's also got fangs in the whole time. Um, it's re- blood is probably the, the biggest thing, the different, uh, the different bloods. We, in fact, have vegetarian bloods. So. <laughs> oh, right. What is, what is the – what's one element of the recipe? You don't have to give it away like KFC, but <laughs> is there anything um, counterintuitive, chocolate sauce or – Baby food. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that's hilarious. Um, okay, so now tell us uh, when it's on till and where we can go. It is at the Mott House Theatre until um, the 5th of March, motthousetheatre.com.au. Yeah. Tickets. And are you, have you moved on psychologically? Oh, uh, no. no. <laughs> I'm going to be living in Vampire Tower for a couple more weeks. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, we'll check it out. Uh, head to malthousetheatre.com.au for more information. And Nosferatu, we've been speaking with playwright Kezia, uh, Kezia Warner. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Thanks so much. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. I did a gig last night, so first one in a while, so and it reminded me comedy gig for those um, unaware. I do stand up <laughs> comedy, and I for this one particular bit, I require a whiteboard, and it was in my show. And anyway, when I do little spots, which means. Uh, it just reminded me what a nuisance this is. And I've gone to great lengths to kind of streamline this setup. Um, as it stands, I currently have a giant whiteboard I got from Officeworks with like foldable legs. It's probably about a metre by 70 centimetres. So heavy, so inconvenient. Because <laughs> it sounds potentially portable, but no. It's portable just, just, but I'm like lugging it to the tram. Like it's a workout on my arms. When I'm on the tram, it's like slightly sticking out into <laughs> the aisle. But this, I've made many attempts. Like I bought a smaller whiteboard 
and then I bought an easel off my beloved Facebook marketplace. <laughs> but I need to be really vigorous when I'm writing on the whiteboard. And I just, I've been looking everywhere for a whiteboard that's quite light with foldable legs. I, I can't find them anywhere. But that's robust enough for vigorous scrolling. Exactly. So when I did the setup with the smaller whiteboard and the the easel, it fell off. Mm. Which, yeah, which is, the, the is easel. exactly what you don't want. Exa- exactly. I didn't want that. It kind of threw the whole bid. And I just can't believe it that I – it just got me thinking about the gap in the market. There's a huge opportunity here. And, and why is there not more – kind of lightweight, foldable, portable whiteboards. Mm. I mean, surely I'm not the only one out there after it. <laughs> I suppose a lot of the whiteboards, and I agree with you, there is definitely a gap. Huge gap. Mm. There's potential for huge profits here. <laughs> yeah, I suppose whiteboards are associated with a certain place usually. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, they, they, they're neglecting the market because they don't think that people are itinerant, that yeah. we are now. Yeah, absolutely. We're out there. Because, yeah, there's the, the ones that teachers often use on the wheels. Mm. And then the shape as well of the one I have, the only one I've found with foldable legs built in is this big, tall shape. Yes. I don't want that. I want the more landscape. They've it's gone straight for portrait. Yeah, portrait, they, thank you. That's the it. word I'm looking for. Yeah, and I, I was just thinking as you were describing also the move back into IRL environments, you yeah. know, the screen fatigue, of course, there's such a demand for physical Huge demand. Like so here's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I'm thinking a whiteboard that would fold in on itself. Yeah. Yes. Kind of like I guess like hinges, yes. so it goes in. Hu- oh, like what? Pe- like a vanity? Like people get undressed behind? Yes, but it's small and it would fold down so it could fit Into in a my bag. Size, yes, perhaps or something like this. Yeah, I mean, let's make it happen, surely. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, as you're thinking, I'm thinking other whiteboard maybe evolutions could be. The, the scrubber or whatever, yeah. maybe if that had like a little satchel on it or a little bubble f- that you could put cleaning liquid in. That would be perfect. Mm. Instead of the kind of lame smudge. Oh, God. And we have the memory and remnants of the previous idea. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm re- like resorting to using my hand and then it's all over the inks all yeah. over my hand and then it's all over my face. I'm humiliated, yeah. let alone dragging a huge whiteboard exactly. all over Melbourne City. Yeah. That's right. I've got, a, I've got a tagline for your product. Okay. Great. Putting the ease back into easel. Yes. I love that. I love that. Come on. Um, <laughs> I also think other whiteboard revolutions could be how many times do people use a permanent marker only to realise that it's that not, it's not a, that they that yeah they didn't mean to use a permanent marker. What about? Uh, a red ring. If you're a permanent marker, <laughs> you have to have a red ring around the tip. Absolutely. Like, like a red wax on an organic <laughs> banana or whatever. As a warning, to let people know, as a last resort. Absolutely. I mm. mean, it's baffling that these are not – that we're having to do this. Yeah. That we're having to take this to the public. I know. And kind of get this happening. I've no, yeah. I have another idea yeah. about portable stuff. What about, you know how battery packs for laptops, Yeah. usually the core of the battery is like this brick or lug yep. little in the middle. What about if we elongated and stretched the battery pack throughout the distance of the core? <laughs> yes. I mean, mm. come on. Yeah. Who do we talk to? <laughs> exactly. Triple R.
You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.